Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Narjos Flores, your host for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. I'm the Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Today, we will discuss in the journey to an oncology fellowship. Our hosts are in medical oncology, but the information here we apply to all oncology subspecialties, particularly in thoracic oncology. Medical training is long, full of sacrifices, student debt for many. For our listeners, after graduating from pre-medicine or undergrad studies, future physicians need to complete four years of medical school, followed by three years of internal medicine residency, or five years of surgery or radiation oncology residency. For those internal medicine residents, they need to complete three to four years additionally for a hematology and or oncology fellowship. This varies by country. Some countries have longer fellowships or shorter. Today, we'll be discussing recommendations for a smooth search, transition, and completion of our oncology fellowship. It is my pleasure to introduce our three guests today. First, I have Dr. Christine Garcia, a thoracic medical oncologist and fellowship program director at Will Cornell Medicine in New York City. Welcome, Dr. Garcia, to Lung Cancer Considered. Hello. We also have Dr. Regina Barragan Carrillo, who completed her medical oncology fellowship in El Instituto Nacional de Ciencias Médicas y Nutrición Salvador Subirán in Mexico City, and is currently a research fellow at City of Hope. Hi, everyone. And lastly, but not least important, we have Dr. Chief Oncology Fellow at Georgetown University. We are focused on thoracic oncology. Hello. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's get this discussion going. In the introduction, we discussed how long training can be, especially when you pick a subspecialty, we in oncology. But we hope to break it down, all the steps to get into oncology and learn from your experiences. Jennifer, we'll be addressing each other first name as colleagues and respect each other. Jennifer, what was the first step that you took when you decided to pursue a career in oncology? Well, I think I spoke to my mentor first, followed by fellows in the program where I was training, that being Emory, and of course, other residents applying that year. But um, I also looked on uh, using online resources such as uh, Frida AMA database to kind of get a sense of programs that were out there. And I guess, dare I say, I also uh, looked at Student Doctor Network to start figuring out what I should be planning for the future. Jennifer, so our audience can understand, what is this Student Doctor Network? So the Student Doctor Network is a online platform, basically a forum similar to a Reddit that is for health professionals who are interviewing either for residency or fellowship or even medical school 
basically other colleagues can post about their experience at a particular program, either during an interview or at times pay, uh, people will use that platform as a means of uh, getting information about whether or not a program has sent out invites, how many, and whether or not another wave of invites has come out. So it's helpful to get more information on a day-to-day -day basis compared to, you know, other online AMA database. All right. So what I can summarize here, I think it was a multiple-step decision to apply into oncology. You rely on mentors, colleagues, and of course, we all do a little stalking to programs. Uh, I particularly went to their social media accounts. At that time, it was Facebook. Uh, things have changed a little bit, but to get as much information as possible before you apply. Is that correct, Jennifer? I would say so. Um, I would, you're interviewing them as much as they are interviewing you, and it's a big decision. So you need to prepare yourself as much as possible before really submitting applications. Well, thank you. Applying for fellowship, as I mentioned at the, in the introduction, will vary by country. At Lung Cancer Considered, we are proud to have listeners from across the globe. Regina, how is the process of applying for an oncology fellowship in Mexico? Are the difference between the application process between medical oncology, surgery, and radiation oncology? Yeah, well, thank you for, for asking me. So in Mexico, the thing we have that it's a, a bit different than the than the U.S. is before we go into like our specialties, let's say I went into internal medicine, folks that do oncological surgery go into general surgery, we have like this very big exam that is only, that takes place like only once in a year and it's a very dramatic moment in every medical professional's life. Like I think there is not a single person that does not remember like very clearly what it was for for every one of them. So after that application, you go, you know, into your specialty, you might buy fast track, like I did, I only did two years of internal medicine, but there are also great folks that do the whole thing, the whole four years here in, well, there in Mexico. And afterwards, the application process, in full honesty, varies more in the type of hospital than the type of specialty. So for example, if you wanna go and do, uh, radiation therapy or do medical oncology in a specific hospital. So the process has its like its own thing in a specific hospital, which might be very different from another. But overall you submit an application, they might have to you might have to do like an exam to show that you know your stuff and you can understand the, the subject and then an interview process that for me was an interview with the current chief. And probably that was it for me. So overall, you have to do your homework and understand like uh, every single institution's different application process because we don't have like a single track for, for everything. That's a very good example how things vary. And we know in Europe varies by country as well. Some countries have these standardized process with other don't. But I think the summary is that it's good to be prepared. It's good to learn about the process before you engage on it. So in that way you can have a more successful, you know, process finding your your program because you may end this program for a ratio three years to five to eight. So I think getting to know the place you're going to be working at would be very important. 
in the U.S., the process is called the match and is managed by the match, which <laughs> first applicants to programs. It's like the oldest dating app that you will know of um, in which you rank your program and they rank you and then you match. So does it remind you of a dating app? It does to me. The problem is <laughs> this is a more long-term commitment. So, Christine, as the program director of the Wheel Corner Fellowship, in your experience, your own experience, could you summarize the process in the U.S. and some of the existing challenges with that? Well, you're right. It's it's very um, it, it's very much like a dating app where um, it's the ERAS application, which is your electronic residency application service, where you have to upload all of your information, and that's your application. And then there is a, a separate program, and that's where the, the match comes in. That's the uh, NRMP. And what happens is that programs review that application from ERAS. And then at some point, uh, you know, there, there's the interview process, and then there's a rank list. So the candidates then rank their top programs, and then the programs rank their top candidates. And then there's some sort of computer matching algorithm that on match day um, puts together the uh, the top you know the top preferences for both programs. It's been around for a long time. I think it was like over seventy years, so it is probably the the, the longest sort of matching app, and it's similar to a uh, sororities in some way. And it's it's not without cost too. So I think this is also as part of the preparation um, to think about. So I, I think it's so. I don't know. In my eyes, it's like this is the most suicide dating app, right? Because you're, you're going to be there for, for sure. a while <laughs> yeah. and you have to run your list for a certain time and certain days. But I think understanding how the process works in your country, then understanding how the process works in your sub-specialty, right? Because we have surgical oncology as a different timeline, the medical oncology, radiation oncology as well. I think it would be key. Um, I put all these deadlines in my calendar. So it's important that you plan ahead instead of you become reactive. And that way it is not as stressful as maybe. Um, it is a stressful, but I think planning ahead will significantly help you. So as we continue to talk about this, you have to submit an application regardless of who you apply to and the specialty. This requires a lot of writing to put this application together. Jennifer, who should the applicants write to? Meaning, who they should keep in mind when writing their personal statement or their application? Should they keep in mind the program director, the committee, the selection committee? Because I think it's very important to have a target when you're writing these very lengthy applications. Yes, thanks, Nurtis. Uh, I think overall, writing the application towards the selection committee is key, but because you don't know who is in the selection committee, that can make it more difficult. In ERAS, I believe you have a variety of personal statements that you can save. So writing with uh, that in mind, after you've reviewed, you know, the program's mission and the goals uh, in mind, you can actually edit your personal statement or application to, well, at least the personal statement to cater to the goals of the program to make you stand out. I think another important thing to be mindful of as you're writing potentially to higher tiered programs of uh, that you might want to show in your personal statement that you have a clear differentiated uh, trajectory of what you want 
to subspecialize in potentially and uh, being very clear about those goals that uh, the program can help you accomplish, such as, you know, research, whereas other programs may be more on like a community-based program, you can cater your personal statement more to a general well-rounded oncologist. Of course, life happens and things change. Uh, Program directors and the selection committee, of course, understand this. But it, it shows that you've thought about what you want your career to potentially look look like in the future. And I think it would help to cater to the audience, depending on the place you're applying to. Thank you, Jennifer, for being very thrilled there. I think, you know, it is a long process. Now that we understand that you have to search the program, look at the program, uh, plan ahead and start writing this application and personal statement. In my case, I, I do believe I neglected my personal statement. I was like rushing last minute. That was around eight years ago. We know that the letters of recommendation, personal statement, and as, as an application as a whole play an important role in the process. To the three of you, what is your top one recommendation when preparing these materials? I will start with Jennifer, then Regina, and then Christine. Yeah, so there, I believe in the ERAS experience section, there's, you know, the opportunity to just expand on um, in, in further detail about your experience on a potential or a, on a particular project. And so I think it's important to not shy away from doing that. It doesn't have to be particularly lengthy, but I think especially for fellowship, defining what you learned or took away from a given experience, even though I think there are volunteer experiences included in that and or potential research projects that you were working on, but you don't have a paper yet, you can explain what you've done, what uh, part of the project you participated in. And I think being able to tie those ideas back to why you're a strong oncology fellowship candidate makes your application just that much more noticeable amongst programs. So I feel like it's often missed, um, a missed opportunity really to to shine in your application. Regina? So, you know, for those people that are procrastinators just as me, so my number one tip would be plan ahead, like plan, 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 and really take your time with this, mostly with the recommendation letter, because you really want to have a letter. So every recommendation letter is going to be positive about yourself, or at least most of it. But you really want to show one that really proves that you can excel at your job. So if you give your mentor some time to really work that into your recommendation letter and not end up with a you know, template-like recommendation letter, I think would be very positive. So you have to be like very honest with yourself and have either a plan or a calendar a schedule that you will have your own goals. Like this is the day I start drafting my letter. And it's better if you don't use your first draft, <laughs> your first draft as, a, of your, as your final draft, because after a couple of days, you might end up having better ideas or really tailored to, as just as Jennifer said, like 
to sell yourself and to sell your more you know strong points to to your program so i think that would be my number one tip and the thing i wish i heard like a, a couple of years ago before i submitted like all my all the application you know paperwork that i had to submit christine i completely agree with both jennifer and rahina you know it's this the the process you know you're trying to encapsulate your entire journey in the the limits of the ERAS application i i read these applications through and through and i think that it's really important that you use that personal statement as an opportunity to share your journey share what you your plans are as uh, as an oncologist or a hematologist and where you see yourself I think that people often don't spend as much time on the personal statement. I think it's really important. The second thing I, I would also echo is about um, your letters. The letter writers, you should be strategic when you decide who you want to write a letter on your behalf. It should be people who who know you very well, and that should come across. And it, whether you want that writer to speak to your clinical skills or your research skills, um, that that should be part of the letter. And perhaps candidates should also spend time to help prepare their letter writers, uh, whether it's providing them their CVs ahead of time or providing sort of highlights of what they want uh, to be part of the letter. And the last thing I would say, since ERAS has changed quite a bit, is with the meaningful experiences. This is, you know, one of the th first things that pops up on the ERAS application, and it's important that you know, you're able to highlight the experiences that are the most meaningful to you. It's important to actually write why they're meaningful to you, not just to sort of rehash what the experience was, but why it actually made a difference in your decision to go into oncology. So I, I think this application, it, it, it does take a lot of preparation uh, and a lot of time. So make sure that someone can can look at drafts ahead of time and to give yourself enough time to prepare. So I'm gonna ask um, a slightly controversial question that I do encourage my mentees to write their own letters of recommendation as a draft yeah. and yeah. send it to the letter writer. So as a quick roll call, would you recommend the new generation of applicants to dry a draft or their own letters of recommendation to send to the letter writers? Christine? I, I agree with that. Uh, I think that sometimes your letter writers need help and, and you need to help them. Jennifer? I would agree. I used to not always think that that was the best way, but you know, it's, you're, putting, you're putting your letter writers potentially in a, a difficult position if they don't know all the ins and outs of everything that you've accomplished. And, and so you give them the opportunity then to really highlight uh, your assets and, and show you off in a way. So I, I mean, I'm more for it now. It took me some years to kind of get there to be okay with giving such an application or rather a, a letter to help guide my writers. But, you know, some sometimes you can get really great letters as well from uh, writers that know you well, that are willing to uh, highlight all the things they know about you in their letters of recommendation as well. And Regina? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that statement more. And actually that's a very, very solid piece of advice that you gave me like, like three years ago. And I stayed with that one like for since then. 
So the person that knows yourself better is yourself. So actually the, the one that has a chance to better sell your strengths and the things you think you're better at your and you're comfortable and you know details that you your mentor might not know as well or might not consider as important as you uh, i think it's your better chance to draft and really show the people with through that application through that recommendation letter like why they should be selecting you and at the end of the day you're the well the person actually writing the recommendation letter is going to make the call whether that's something important to have in in that letter or not so i think it's good providing the the person you're asking for your for for your letter with some ideas and you really help them and i think it also shows a lot of respect for 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 their time so i think that's a very very solid piece of advice thank you so the summary the uh, the group has spoken is to draft your own letters i still do it and i will do it uh, until I can no more, because it really helps to strengthen your application. And actually, it makes it easier. You don't have to hunt down people for the letters as much when you already send a draft. I think it's an easier ask. So we're moving chronologically to the process, right? So your application has been submitted, and now it's time for interviews. This time, the ball is on their court, the applicants, to attend the interviews that fit for them. The process has changed with the pandemic and many programs have switched to virtual interviews. In my opinion, this process has decreased the expenses for many applicants. I interviewed back in the day when we used to travel and it was over $10,000, but also reduced their exposures to the programs because the interviews are virtual. You don't get to see the environment and meet more people. Christine, can you share your experience with virtual interviews? and how you see this now and would it stick for the near future? So we started the virtual interviewing process because of COVID and it was, we, we didn't have a choice. And now we've continued it because I think that there's a lot of benefits. I, I agree, I think it, it does really help with equity because it's really expensive to do all these interviews, especially if you know none of the programs coordinate interviews. So people were traveling back and forth, back and forth. So I think from from that perspective, it's very helpful to have a virtual environment, but there's also a lot of downsides to it. The virtual recruitment, you, you don't really get to see what might be your home for the next three years. Uh, you don't get to see the actual environment. You don't get to see the clinical space. You don't get to see... Um, you know, how your your future colleagues interact with each other. So there is a lot lost. So what we've had to do is really shift how we start to almost like market our program in terms of putting a lot more information into the virtual interviews and, and having, you know, a lot of our, a lot of the fellowship programs are, are a lot more on social media so that you can show, show off your program and show off what your fellows are doing. I, I do think it's here to stay both from uh, just within our institution, but also based on the academic, uh, the Alliance for Academic uh, Internal Medicine, because it's a lot easier for programs to to keep it virtual. And I, I think that for candidates who are going to these virtual interviews, it's it's just as important to prepare for the virtual interview, uh, be presentable. They're, they're often like within our program, we have we have time for the candidates to do a Q&A with the 
the current fellows. And, and it's important to use that time to ask questions and also share more about your application itself. Oh, like everything in life, it is cheaper, but it comes with a price. Can yeah. we say that? <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I do think that it is good, but I think I may be old school, but I like to go in there, sneak into the bathroom, get information from the first years. I would recommend this to anybody. Talk to the first years because that's when the hottest time is around. You're learning so much. And um, I think this the learning curve is very steep in first year. So I would think that is my recommendation. Uh, Jennifer, the, were you part of that class that needed to interview virtually? How was your experience? Oh, yes, I was. Um, it was interesting. You know, it, of course, it was financially more feasible and less expensive than residency. But I, as um, has been echoed before, I I think you really lose a lot uh, with the virtual interviews. I found it very difficult to really get a sense of a program. And it might have just been that it was the first year we did it. But I, it's it's hard to really find uh, or get a sense of the culture and how people interact if you're not. And what are the facilities like? Um, how how are you going to navigate or see yourself in that program if you're not visiting? So I think, I mean, they have their benefits, but I, I did really miss even some of the nonverbal cues that exist when you're interacting with a person, uh, you know, having to stare at a camera rather than a, another human uh, or directly at a face is um, <laughs> takes some time to get used to. So I, I would say I think it's it has its benefits, but I found it very difficult to to really get to know the place. Thank you. And thank you for being so real. So as we're moving to process, right, application is out, interviews are has been accepted, and you have interview. And to go back to the dating analogy, now it's time to find out, you know, that not all programs are perfect. Like nobody that you meet in a dating app is perfect. So some may have more appealing geographic locations. Others may have a lower cost of living. We all know that the perfect training program doesn't exist. Using current language, and yes, I'm trying to be cool, let's discuss top red flags and beige flags for a fellowship program. To explain a little further, the beige flag is a new term that Gen Z is using uh, about something good. What is that? good aspect of the fellowship. So I will start with Regina. What is one red flag that you look for in a program and a boy? And what is something you appreciate as a beige flag? Yeah. So for me, a big red flag and a big no-no were these programs that a lot of people used to leave during their first year. So actually, even though you're not there in person, you have to find a way to contact people that are in the program or used to be in the program to understand, like, if people are leaving, why is that? Is it something because of the environment? Is it something because that didn't align with their, you know, personal views or something, like, independent from, from the program? But people leaving is usually, like, a big, big red flag for me that I should, like, do a little more research on to understand what, what happened there. And a big page flag for me, and actually something that 
did happen to me when I was looking for an oncology fellowship program is whenever you like the way people work. So whenever you're with an oncologist that you really admire, and that's, this happens more often than not, you try to imitate what they're done and you try to go into similar programs. Of course, this might have some limitations as programs do evolve with, with time. But whenever somebody was doing some work that I really liked and wanted to have like a similar career path, that would be like my my yes, yes for a career program. All right, Christine, where are your red flag, the one red flag and the beige flag about fellowship programs? Oh, I think one of the biggest red flags, uh, especially when you come to the the uh, the interview processes, are are when you're then you're when you're not able to talk to the fellows. Like, are the fellows that busy that they're not part of the interview process? I, I think that's really important. And and, and echoing Rahina's point, l- looking at where the fellows go afterwards, are they staying? Are they um, going somewhere else? Does that program want to keep all of the fellows that that they've trained? I think that's uh, important to, to know. As far as beige flags for me, I think it's really good, especially as, as a woman in oncology, to find out what what are the women treated like at, at that program? Uh, what supports do they have? Um, what are the specific opportunities for, for women in oncology in each program? I think that's a really a good thing to sort of elicit and also see as you're looking and sort of spying in on what each program has. Thank you. We're almost done with this flag analogy. So Jennifer, what is one red flag and one beige flag that you will see in a training program? So I'm going to echo a lot of what has been said already in that the red flags is you got to see the fellows. They need to be involved in the process. And it's it's very disconcerting when they're not for similar reasons that were mentioned previously. I think it's also important to have transparency uh, between programs. I want to say that's my beige flag. If you're not feeling like you're getting a straight answer, uh, I wouldn't assume people are not doing or doing this on purpose or not telling you things out of ill will, but just inquire again and and try to get your your questions answered. If you need to get another opinion from a secondary party, especially with interviews being more virtual, find a means to to doing that. Uh, ask to connect via email to other fellows in the program to get your your questions answered. I think transparency is inherently important and uh, you need you need to get the information in order to make the best decision for yourself. Well, thank you uh, to the three of you. And my next question is for all of you again. As you have completed training, if you could, could go back in time, what is the one thing you wish you would have known prior to applying, selecting your program, and completing training? I will start with Christine. Um, I think if I could go back in time years ago when I was deciding on programs, I think I would have asked a lot more questions. I think I would have, um, you know, met, you know, asked more questions of people who were former fellows. I would have tried to learn more about. Um, you know, what their true experiences was, because I think everyone puts their best foot forward on interview days, but seeing kind of what the real 
every day is like is that sometimes does not come across. And the other thing was that one of my mentors told me before that uh, when you're deciding on a program, really think about the location of the program because you may end up staying there later on. So if it's not somewhere that you really want to live or could see yourself living for a longer period of time, then maybe it's not exactly the right program for you. I do echo that. Um, I didn't think that through. And I think Minnesota was not for me. It was a wonderful program, but I just didn't see myself living there long term. So I completely support that. Uh, Rahina, what is one thing you wish you had known? Yeah, so I think understanding that there is not a perfect program at the end of the day is something that I wish I knew beforehand. And you try to make, make the better parts of your program, like suit yourself and everything. But you got to also understand that you have to work your, your way through to kind of fit in there also. But I really like Christine's answer, and I wish I did more research in that. I mean, you the best way to see whether you would fit or not is to talk to the people that are currently on that that program. So I think that would be like my my most important thing to to have in mind. And Jennifer, what is that one thing that if you could, you know, go back on time, instead of back of the future, it's back to the past. So you could have known that. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, uh, keeping an open mind is uh, something I wish it, I had considered further before I was applying, just because, you know, I personally went into fellowship thinking I was going to be a malignant hematologist. And, you know, things change, you change, your goals change, change, you're, you're um, adapting to a new environment. So you may be surprised what you end up liking in fellowship. You know, I, I'm now on a, a trajectory to do a thoracic oncology um, focused uh, job in my future endeavors. And I never saw that coming. So uh, that would probably be something I would consider is not necessarily pigeonholing yourself in one particular uh, specialty or subspecialty within oncology. I think that's a very good point, Jennifer, because we don't know. Like I started my fellowship, I thought I was going to be a phase one trialist. And my mentor was Dr. Ajay, who's the editor-in-chief of JTO. And I think just being coming to fellowship with open eyes and being flexible, I think something that I would recommend to everybody. So as we're almost to the end of the conversation, I have uh, two more questions for you. So to all our early career listeners at each work conference on lung cancer and local conferences like North American Lung or Latin American Lung Cancer Conference, there exist dedicated sessions for early investigators and clinicians that include useful information. If you're attending a ISLC meeting, take a look at the program and take advantage of this opportunity. To continue the conversation, what is your number one recommendation for first-year fellows um, in surgery, radon, medon, pathology, that will have a focus in thoracic oncology. Uh, I'm gonna go the other way, so I will start with Jennifer. One number one recommendation for the first day of fellowship. I think most importantly is to be patient with yourself. You're potentially adjusting to a new city, a new hospital system, a new lifestyle. 
and a new discipline. And oncology is its own language. So, I mean, no one's expecting you to know all of the answers on day one or even six months in. Um, just be patient with yourself. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Christine, what is your number one recommendation for that first year trainee? Uh, I would say my uh, number one recommendation for a first year trainee would be to not be afraid to ask questions. We know that your first year of training is is exponential learning. And, and while internal medicine may prepare you really well for other fellowships, since you do a lot more cardiology, nephrology, GI in your internal medicine residency, much of oncology is in the outpatient setting. So coming to fellowships sometimes feels like you're learning a, a whole different language. So don't be afraid to ask questions uh, when you're seeing patients. Make sure you spend time to learn about the patient itself, but but also to learn about their disease and what their treatments are and the, the sort of papers and, and literature around that. Thank you. Regina, number one tip. So that would be for me, don't forget about the big picture. I mean, you're not your fellowship, you're not your hospital, you're a person at the end of the day with its own interests and family and background and everything. So you have to have always your, your feet on the ground and you're, don't forget whenever you're having a bad day, you're much more, much more than that because in fellowship, especially for me in the first year, I think we would have a bad day more often than, than not. So I think that's very good advice. And don't forget there are things also outside of the hospital that your life is not dependent on whether you know the right answer during, during rounds. So don't forget about that part. Thank you. So we are about to run out of time, but before we end our conversation, we'd be like to get to know you better. Can you share with your audience why do you decided to pursue a career in oncology? Christine, I will start with you. Why thoracic oncology? Well, I think that being a thoracic oncologist is is really a rewarding career. You get to see patients who um, have have often you meet them in the hospital and they're very sick and you can make such a difference in their lives. The field is is rapidly changing. We have so many new targeted therapies and it, it this you can bring a lot of hope and and advocacy for some of these patients. And it's also it's. It's, it's the best field, but I'm biased. Regina, why oncology and why a fellowship at City of Hope? Sure. So like many of your listeners, I was inspired by a great practicing oncologist that does breast oncology in, in Mexico, in a city that's called Monterey in the northern part. So I think she truly showed me what an oncologist can truly be and really indifference to other spe specialities. I think with oncology, you really get to share the most, uh, to share time with a person's worst days and also with a person's best days. So that was something that was truly, truly important for me whenever I started applying. And something that really compelled me is that during, you know, the, the visit, we would talk about such mundane things like day-to-day, -day, like how was your grandkids' birthday, how was somebody's wedding, and I think that really showed the nature of the humane profession that oncology is. And Seed of Hope, so I'm currently I'm lucky enough to have such an amazing mentor, Dr. Dr. Samantha Powell, who has um, an impressive record of his mentorship. So what I did to really you know, follow this path is I didn't look at the mentor, I look at the mentees. So 
I noticed that his mentees were doing such an amazing job. We're putting such great papers out. We're doing all these posters and conferences. So that's why I came here because I didn't look only at the mentor, which is something I think a mistake a lot of us do like earlier in their careers, but I looked like at the product, at the mentees, at what they're doing, and actually did interview with one with one of them. And I think that was the the turning point in my career when I decided to to come here. Thank you. Jennifer, what was the motivation behind your decision? I know you were in musical theater before, so that's a bit of a 360 turn. <laughs> yes, of course. I think realistically, those uh, really were two different operating uh, decision points in my life. I would say with musical theater, I'd done that, you know, uh, as a hobby growing up and uh, actually was able to go to um, Tulane University for both musical theater and be pre-med and have the opportunity to be accepted into a program that granted me admission to medical school with the added benefit of being a non-biology major. And so it was kind of the best of both worlds. I would say with music or with oncology, that came a little bit later during second year of medical school. I really fell in love with the pathophysiology of uh, hematology and um, the study of cancer. And I think I always knew I was at that point, second year, I was going to be an oncologist. I think later, though, these two things really go hand in hand, that being theater and oncology for me. You know, bottom line, I, I wanted to help people. Um, I, I enjoyed those intense interactions with patients and felt like I could really be present, which is important to, you know, be there um, in the moment doing theater, uh, having strong listening skills and responding on your feet at times in a very honest and vulnerable place is important for both kind of specialties, I would say. And, and to approach, you know, your discussions with your patients in a very present moment uh, or being for being very present with them. So I, I would say though, yes, uh, it was a, a bit of a 360. They do have their benefits or both have benefited me in my career and throughout training. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure to share this space with you. I would like to thank Christine, Jennifer, and Regina for their time and recommendations. Thanks again for having us. Thank you so oh, much. This was great. It was such a lovely time. Thanks so much for having us. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. And we hope that you will tune in regularly to give us a listen. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 